welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning, or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. 
And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Also from John's Gospel, John chapter 1, some verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Let's pray as we gather around God's word together. Creator God, you reveal yourself to us as father, son and Holy Spirit. And so as we gather in this place Come amongst us. Help us discern your spirit in the world around us and let us find joy in the world that you created. Help us to worship you with our, all our being and to hear and receive your word and your gifts. And as we think about our local community right here and the glory of the natural world, may we respond to you in love for our neighbors and for your creation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, so we are at the beginning of a series. I do like being at the beginning of things. I'm a starter, an idea generator, not a complete or finisher, so I'm always happiest starting things. This series is called Longing for Eden as we begin to take some reflections uh, through 
the book of Genesis. So it's an introduction, if you like, to this, morning, or this afternoon to the book of beginnings, which is what the book of Genesis is all about. Now, I don't know who the most annoying person is in your household or your network when it comes to watching movies. Um, we all know that person that comes in, usually well after the start, and they just start coming in with their annoying questions about who's this person or what's going on here or why is this going on and you're like shh just shh shut up and watch the whole thing and if you've been here at the start in my house it's more than likely to be me and I've heard a number of people point to that sort of reality when it comes to the story of the Christian faith and um, when we ignore the beginning or when we miss the beginning, i.e. the story of creation that sets the whole scene for not only the Hebrew Bible, what we call our Old Testament, but the whole scripture, we, we often end up like that person asking maybe annoying questions or dumb questions or, or we just get things out of kilter if we do not take seriously uh, the beginning of our Old Testament. So lest we miss the point of our faith as we read our Christian Bibles and our, our, our faith, our faith should expand our concept of what it means to be human. It should, it should fill our hearts up and, 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 and expand our experience of this world. But so often, I think sometimes our faith at times will constrict or, or certainly views as, as narrowing. And, and, and sometimes I think that's because uh, we maybe don't take as seriously the beginning. So Genesis is a sort of thing that just paints an incredibly broad and expansive picture of what it means uh, to be human, and we ignore it at our peril. And so we begin this week a, a series uh, for about 10 weeks where we're going to be uh, just reflecting on the book of Genesis. We will not cover everything. We cannot even cover very much in that sort of time period. But the first, first five weeks will be in Genesis 1 to 11, which is the sort of primeval history, the earliest stage from the creation of Adam to the Tower of Babylon. And then after that, the second half, and it's kind of the way Genesis is divided up, so 1 to 11, and the second half, 11 through to 50, is the story of the patriarchs. And we'll track, uh, at some speed, the life of Abraham all the way through to Joseph um, at the end in chapter 50. So that's the kind of flow, and just to help us as we go, uh, we are going to have again, like we did uh, before in the book of Revelation, social media posts uh, each week, which are designed to do a number of things. On the one hand, they'll have some questions just to help you reflect together, in, maybe in your missional communities, or maybe just as further study. But as well as some study questions, they'll also have some practices each week that just help you to, to linger, to dwell, to put into practice some central aspect of what we have been talking about. And they will guide you towards that. And as well as that, you will find links to a podcast. Largely, it's going to be a podcast from the Bible Project, who I'm ever increasingly just becoming a major fan of. And so if there's questions that just go off in the deep end and they require like hours of explanation, instead of turning Sunday into a lecture theater, we're going to offload some of that. And just to point to where, if you want to think further, how to fill this out, where you might go, and that would sit along some of the teaching in that. So it's important to do that extra work if you want, but 
Sunday is a place not just to sit with abstract questions. It's a place where we come together and stand in the presence of God to worship him and listen and respond to him. Um, and so this, the posts that you'll see on social media are, are on Instagram are meant to help with that. They'll also be in our weekly email. So just watch out for those as they come out um, through the week as a, as a supplement and as a help. Today's sort of um, agenda, a map of what we're thinking about, uh, just to give a, a brief overview. Um, I want to just start with some, because we're wrestling again with a, a, another maybe new book of the Bible for some, just some basic strategies that we'll just kind of skirt over quite quickly just to put them out there. You don't need to fully embrace, understand, just note, we'll do that at the start and then move on before then just highlighting two words or concepts that together lead us towards the main story arc of the book of Genesis. As it sets up, as I said before, it sets up the entire first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and the entire Hebrew Bible, and the entire Bible, the Christian Bible, Old and New Testament. So we'll lean into two words that kind of get us quite quickly to the main story arc. And and hopefully see that it's a story that has immediate relevance to our lives right here, right now, with all that is going on in a chaotic world. So let me just start by drawing to your attention just some, I guess, reading strategies at large. I'm at four. Now, if you're a note taker and you want to scurry notes down, I want to give you the grace of just relaxing because I'll also put that on Instagram so you can just go like, ah, they'll, they'll be on Instagram. But if you want to write, write. Um, but here's just four strategies just to bear in your mind as you start to listen to this text week by week and think, uh, what's going on here? Um, the first one is uh, to assume it's literature for a lifetime. Now, I'm going to link to a podcast on that very theme. Assume it's literature for a lifetime, not immediate chunks that give us a nice word for today. The, we are dealing with ancient literature here that both has a linear sense to it but, and makes it sense in a linear logic, but also has a circular sense where it comes back on itself to, to find deeper and deeper meanings and links. And so we are dealing with something, and I think many of us are brought up with the idea, which I think is slightly mistaken, that we're meant to be able to open these Bibles and just read them and make sense of them easily. It's just meant to jump out at us off the pages. And whilst it went on hold to, the Bible is, I believe if you can read it, it can lead you to Jesus and the essentials of our salvation. But it does not mean it is an easy book to interpret. And so to say it's, assume it's literature for a lifetime, this is a book we just keep coming back to slowly time and time again and go like, gee, I'm, I'm 40. I'm still just treading in the, the shallow end of this. I, I can't get my head around you. Know. So we go at a pace where we don't assume, you know, maybe we set aside time and read our Bibles and go, I just didn't get that. Good. <laughs> Good. Understand. Wrestle with that. Sit with that for months and go like, I'm not sure I got that. And go like, well, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Assume it's literature for a lifetime. The second thing is, in terms of strategy, is to seek to understand their world first, as best as possible, um, before trying to put our questions into it. In Genesis, it describes, a, I am going to say strange, a very different cosmology, understanding of the world to what we would understand through what we now know with, uh, through a scientific lens. In the Hebrew imagination, then, they understood the world being divided up through this vault, this dome-like thing that, that 
separated the waters into the, the heavens above and the land below and below that the Sheol, the, the, the murky waters of, of chaos. And so in their imagination, the understanding of the, the universe was, was a dome-like thing. And as I've been taught, the best thing to do is rather than come along as moderns with all our scientific knowledge and step outside the dome and, and look at it and go, like, oh, that's, you know, this is what they really meant. The strategy we're meant to do is actually go, like, let's get back in the dome and actually understand their worldview, understand what they're trying to say, to, to see what they're trying to tell us about God, about who he is, about who his people are, about how this world is. And then, yes, we are allowed to bring our questions to the table, but, but not without stepping, as they say, to seek their world first. Third strategy, as we reflect on this, is to lower our egos. <laughs> it's kind of a repetition of the first, that this is literature for a lifetime, but just lower our egos. We, we be ready to be wrong, be ready to be surprised, be, be ready to be humbled by what we just can't wrap our heads around or what we can't really know through the, the distance of, of history between the origin of this ancient uh, text. To, to be confused about when we say it's maybe it's a historical book, an historical account, it means a different thing to what moderns mean by history. And to see the flexibility writers have to, to create narratives and inject it into the text and go like, that's not what we view as history. And go like, okay. Let's just lower our way of doing things and engage with this uh, text as we find it. The fourth strategy is to look for patterns. Look for patterns. The Hebrew literature is, has similarities in the ancient Near East, but also a uniqueness about it in terms of how often it uses repetition. Repeated words, repeated concepts and ideas, or repetition with variation. So the same word used in a slightly different context that's meant to make us go like, oh, hyperlink to something else to take us back to a former story. And so we, we, we are trained, and again, in, in the West, we tend to think of repetition, like if you're writing an essay and there's repetition, you're normally thinking, oh, I can't use that word again. I can't use, I need to show them I'm, I'm smart. I'll use a different word. And, and sometimes in the English translations, unfortunately, that's what the translators do. It's the same word and they think, oh, I can't say that again, so I'll use another word. And, and, and actually, we lose something of the Hebrew imagination that's meant to say, that's meant to be triggered. That's relating to that story. That's happened before. And so it, it goes back in. So, so we get used to looking for patterns and with humility, if we spot one in a couple of months, we celebrate and go, like, yes, I'm starting to see how this is put um, together. So just some things just to go like, ah, this is what we deal with when we say we are reading the scriptures. Just some strategies to, I was going to say take or leave. I say more take than just <laughs> leave um, and reflect a wee bit further. Let me just paint a picture through two words that help us just to step into their world to understand uh, something about this whole first creation account that we have in Genesis 1 in the beginning of 2. First word is temple and the second word is Sabbath. The first creation account that we heard read there portrays the entire cosmos or, or universe um, as God's house. Indeed, the Hebrew imagination, in the Hebrew imagination, the, the world is a large temple, a, a dwelling place of God. 
And later it could be said that the tabernacle or the temple is a small cosmos or a small world. And we can explain the significance of this for a moment, but it's as if this whole introduction in Genesis, like somebody's described it as a cosmic liturgy. It's, it's painting the picture to say this world is God's temple, his dwelling place, his house. And there are a whole bunch of clues that we are meant to, as we read and listen to this text, we are meant to make that connection between the temple and the world. And if anybody reads your Old Testament, you realize tabernacle and temple just become themes that come up time and time again. So it's incredibly important. And again, without the need to to memorize any of this, just to get a bit more acquainted with some temple world connections. Um, There's a whole bunch of clues and connections that we could make that could be easily overlooked. So let me just touch upon some of those just now. Most of them are linguistic, um, uh, but the first one is a historical one, which is to say in the ancient Near East, they would have known. As soon as you say temple and world, they would have got that. That was a common analogy that they would have, their minds would have gone straight to. So in that context, they wouldn't have been like, what? They would like, no, straight away, when you talk temple and when you talk world, they, they, they made connections. But as well as that, linguistically, in the actual Bible itself, we find loads of connections. For example, the, the Ruach Elohim, which is the spirit of God or the wind of God which is a way of describing his energetic personal presence, is present in the creation of the cosmos in Genesis 1-2. And the same Ruach, Elohim, appears in Exodus 31-3 and 35-31 in the construction of the temple. And again, this repetition, this word is, is not accidental, it's intentional. In Proverbs, we find that it's by wisdom the world was created. And then we also find this character called Bezalel. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, but he was an artisan involved in building the tabernacle and he built it by wisdom. And again, another connection that the building of this tabernacle is something to do with the same wisdom of this world. Another terminological connection is the word, this Hebrew word for light and and lamp that's referred to in the tabernacle Um, is also the same word that is used in the creation account when it talks about the great lamps, the sun and the moon. So it's like, in some ways, it's it's God showing off. He said, I'm I'm quite into lights at the minute for our church building project. This week, I've got to check a whole bunch of lights. But in God's house, his lights are the sun and moon and stars. He said, have that. And it's a sense of, in the tabernacle, it's a tiny version of what, it, it, of what God's real temple and design intention was in the first place. And we have other references in the Hebrew Bible. Psalm 104, Job 98, where creation is likened to a tabernacle being pitched by God or a house being established with pillars, windows, and doors. We have a seven-day structure in the creation account which appears to be mirrored by the seven speeches of God in Exodus 25 to 31. And then... When it comes to the completion of the tabernacle, it's described as remarkably similar to how we find in the reading we've just heard from Genesis 1. So just listen to the parallel of the Exodus moment where the tabernacle is completed versus the account of Genesis. So Exodus 39, 43, and Moses saw all the work and behold, they had done it. In Genesis, and God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. 
Exodus 39, 32, thus was completed all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. In Genesis, the heavens and earth were completed and all their array. Exodus 40, 33, when Moses had finished the work, Genesis 2, 2, God finished the work which he had been doing. Exodus 39, 43, Moses blessed them to sanctify it and all its furnishing. Genesis 2, 3, and God blessed and God sanctified. And so time and time again, we start to realize the writer of the the scriptures, or you could say the editors of the Old Testament, are starting to make connections left, right, and center between the temple and the, the account of creation in the world. There's loads more you could go into. It's basically like the Garden of Eden was the Holy of Holies. And Adam was the, the high priest in, in the garden. And, and we see that again in the temple where you come into the temple gates and the cherubim were there and they come in from the east. And it's the east, the cherubim, where they cast out Adam and Eve and they stood at the gate. So time and time again, the, 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 the theology that is telling us that we need to understand the temple is God's dwelling place. And therefore, to begin with, to have a a, a panoramic view of the Christian faith, that God's intention all along wasn't to have this super spiritual plane over here. The whole world was his dwelling place, his place that was meant to bring him glory. This world, with all its chaos and problems, was the place where God loved and dwelled and wanted to be among his people. And it's to learn to, through faith, to see him in the full array of color in all of our creative world, and also to learn as worshipers to care for his creation. And so we just start to make some connections to, uh, in our minds, that this God really loves this world that he has made and desires to fill it with his presence. And so if the temple or the cosmos uh, theme sets sets a panoramic theater for God's plans and intentions, then the concept of Sabbath fills it up with meaning and and purpose. And I want to suggest the Sabbath, uh, as described in Genesis 1, 3 to 2, reveals the goal of creation. The Sabbath is the pinnacle of what's going on in this creation account. Now, some of, I, I, I think I was got this in my head. It's easy to see the pinnacle and the climax on day six when they create um, humanity. And of course, there, there's something elevated in the whole narrative about human beings made in the image of God. Uh, there is an elevated status. There's something very good, as the account says, about this moment where humanity is created. And we have this image of God male and female, uh, elevated before us. And now, in the, we could go down one of saying, actually, we could spend a lot of time actually looking at, go, look at the equality right there in the intention and design, and that would be fun, wouldn't it? We could spend a long time down that, but there's something really important about God saying, look, his intention there, we have male and female representing equally the image of God. And one of the significant things there is there's other stories in the ancient Near East, which I'll tell you about in a few moments. But only in those stories you'd have, you'd have gods who would be said to be the image or the statue representing um, the, the gods. And here it's, it's not. Humanity is bestowed with a really elevated status that reflect the likeness of God. 
So there's, and there's something deeply meaningful about their vocation to, to keep, to rule over creation and to serve in creation, the work of their hands. And we've talked about this before. Like, like our work is, has incredible importance in the, in the economy of God. Like it's, it's a central part of what he has for us. But even that is subjugated or curtailed or put in a context um, by this pinnacle, not on day six, but on day seven, the Sabbath, because it's, it's humanity's relationship in terms of being with their God, enjoying him and glorifying him. That is the true climax of this elevated status of man and woman. It's in their relationship to God I, that is a climax here in the text. And it's sometimes said to be the forgotten inclusion of Sabbath as the pinnacle, what we capture in chapter two, verses one to three. And so if you wanted to try and sound, well, find a structure to just flow through Genesis as quickly as possible, most scholars will will subscribe to a, a structure that goes like this, that points to this climax on the seventh day in the Sabbath, um, which shows in the first three days, the realms being established. The second three days, the realms being filled. And so we have this symmetry. And if I had a slide, I, would, I meant to do a slide. And I thought, we've got a rubbish screen. I'm not going to do slides this week. And then we have a big TV. And I would have done a slide. But if we had a slide, on the one hand, we have realm one, two, and three. So realm one, the light and the dark is created. Realm two is the sea is created. Realm three is the land and vegetation. And then in parallel, we have day four, two great lights that fill the light and dark. In the sea, we have the sea creatures on day five and the waters filled. And on day six, we have the animals and humanity which fill day three. So they stand in a symmetry together that builds to the seventh day, the Sabbath set apart on its own to be the, and it's the first day that is blessed, it's the first day that's mentioned three times, and it's the first day that's mentioned as being set apart as holy. So this is a cosmic liturgy. This, all of this life is meant to culminate towards this beautiful God and it's mankind in the relationship to him that everything finds its wholeness and meaning and its beauty. I said to Claire the other night, lying in bed, I was like, did you do the catechism growing up? And she kind of looked a bit ashamed and embarrassed, or just like, no. I was like, I grew up in a Presbyterian church, so I remember a wee shorter blue pamphlet thing, and I I literally can't remember anything else about the catechism. But I do know that one of the first questions, it may even be the first, I haven't looked up, what, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's as far as my knowledge goes. And, but I, I do remember sitting with that pamphlet and going, uh, wrestling with something. But that is how theologians would describe Look, That is mankind's chief end, which relativizes everything else. It doesn't make them unimportant. It's just to say these things fit well in their context as, they, as we do them in service with and communion with our God. Of course, my job isn't so much to tell us what to do with your lives, but it's much more just to remind us of that, of what's most important, what's the foundational core to our lives together. Famously, St. Augustine, he experienced this as a hole in his heart, a God-shaped hole. Now, I don't presume everybody had the same experience as St. Augustine, but many a person could make, has done and made sense of the fact that we have 
restless souls until they find their rest in thee. So many things in life that actually just are separated out but find their wholeness as they come into him. So the Sabbath, if we have temple to say that this is something, a primary picture of involves so many things. The Sabbath says the goal, our intention, is, is fulfillment is something about our relationship to God, to Yahweh here in the Hebrew Bible. And with just two words, temple and Sabbath, we're inducted into the world of Genesis. The field of concern is wild, wide, sorry, it's wild, wild and wide. And the purpose is caught up in our connection with the one true living God. This is just introduction, but there were other stories in the ancient Near East in that area at the time. There were loads of other stories and theologians have debated about how much has been borrowed from other traditions and some get nervous about it and some are pretty relaxed about it. But there were lo- it's good for us to know there were alternative stories to what the Genesis story is, is going to tell us. There was Egyptian stories. There was a Akkadian language, which has, a, which Babylon would have had a, a whole bunch of stories. One of the most famous is the Numa Elish, which means "when on high." Forgive me if not pronounced that right, but it's this is basically one that would have been told in Babylon. And it's probably fair to believe that you know Babylon would have been like, in terms of influence, like New York is to. Uh, well, everywhere else in the world. So it's quite influential. So more likely that is definitely going to uh, be show up in, in other peoples because they're going to have to wrestle with the influence of such a, a big uh, empire. And in, in the When on High account, we have, uh, and, and there, there's, there's many others, but there's a, a, a god, Marduk, who basically is involved in a war and is a, a conflict story. And Marduk ends up slaughtering the demon god, another demon god, and took his blood and mixed it with clay to make humanity. And there's an incredible sense of, of conflict around these stories. The, the biblical account has similarities, similar flood stories, and we'll get into some of that. There's, so there are similarities, but actually what is most significant is not is not what's similar, but it's actually what's different about the accounts. And what's different about the accounts here clearly and categorically from any other ancient Near East account of the creation of the world is that here in Genesis, we have an announcement of a God who created out of freedom, grace, and love, and beauty, and justice, and bestowed the same freedom on mankind and saw a glory to their work. They went to work slavishly for the gods, as some account where some of the, the smaller gods couldn't be bothered working, so they got humans to do the work. That's not the story here. We have work that is dignified to represent and care for creation, to image God, and this good God, Yahweh, has already prepared beautiful trees and plants. He's a provider before he's even created Adam and Eve. And so there is this distinction that is good news for people of faith. As Christians come and say, this is our God. 
we have a God here who, who wants to be known. And I would say more than wants to be known. What we are going to find, we are going to find in Genesis a God who is determined to be known and to work out his promise to bless humanity through this dysfunctional family that we're going to hear all about. And despite humanity's absolute worst to screw things up time and time again, we have the goodness of God pursuing and pushing through to put right and to restore. And they paint a picture of a beautiful God, full of truth, full of grace, and this is good news. He cares for all that he's made. He adorns it with his presence, with his love. Longing for Eden is an ache for the world to be put right, but it's also chiefly an ache for a world to be reconciled with their creator God. Longing for Eden is also the beginning of a long and a bumpy journey of God working through his desire to bless and promise, to carry a promise through an incredibly, and I mean incredibly dysfunctional family. And we know straight away through the book of Genesis that it's going to be a, a bumpy journey to see his plans come to fruition because Genesis begins with an intimate picture in a garden of Eden, but it ends with Joseph's bones, his dead body, buried in exile in Egypt. And so we are going to get the sense here that this is going to be a long and bumpy journey through this story in the Bible. But slowly and progressively, God works out in his determination to bless through the word of his promise just how far he will go in his pursuit to restore Eden the place where his presence shines in all corners of this universe and to bring in a new Sabbath, people walking with God, glorifying him. And progressively works his way all the way to the time of Christ, which we've read about. And like it's been said many times before, this is the moment where the, the author writes himself into the script and steps down into the story and he dwells among us. And shows the heights, the depths, the breadth God will go to, to reveal himself, to pursue us, and to bring us back to him and to hold our world. This is our good God that in John's prologue, prologue shows us how, how touchable this God is. Because he seeks out us. This is God's good world. And we are experiencing geopolitical turbulence like, I don't know, more than in my lifetime. This, this season that we are, are in just now. For some reason, I was thinking back to a moment when um, Max, I meant to get his permission for this, but I'll have to apologize. He was, he was two at the time, he broke his leg. I think I was thinking back to it because I was at a park where I'd taken him, um, taken him and he is in the double leg cast. He broke his legs and he's two on a bike. And he had full length cast both legs. And we're out, um, this isn't the story, but this is what reminded me. Um, I, I put him in a swing because he wanted to go in the swing and thought it'd be a good idea. And I got him into the swing, but I couldn't get him out of the swing. So he was stuck in the swing. Anyway, it made me, I was back at that swing and it made me think about that whole time when Max was, um, so he, he broke his leg, uh, his femur in big break. And, um, 
the reassuring part in, in all of it was that early on, the brilliant consultant um, who had been looking after us said, look, it's a bad break, but it's in a good place. He's going to be absolutely fine. And, and as a parent, your heart just, that's kind of all you need to know in that moment. But then it led to, we kind of needed that moment because it led to a really difficult, well, certainly 10 days in a couple months. For 10 days, he was on traction, lying in bed with his leg up, can't move, two-year-old. Two-year-olds run around a lot, I can tell you that. And so there were literally times where, over those 10 days, where, uh, where Max must be thinking, what the heck are you doing? But we're literally, Claire or I, were literally leaning over Max, holding him in to the bed. And he was like screaming at us, going, what are you doing? Because you just didn't want him to move to keep the leg healing right. And we're just leaning in, holding him into, into, that, um, into that place in the bed. And do you know, the only thing that kind of reassured us in that moment was we knew the ending was going to be fine because the consultant said, like, it's actually going to be fine. And all we were was like a sort of maternal, paternal presence through a really turbulent time. I think this moment that we're in in the world is much more like from the bed position of Max. It's like, I find the world quite an intimidating place. There are things that make you want to just scream, cry, get anxious about. And I think the invitation here is, in some way, is, is God not saying, look, look, this isn't a problem. No, this is, this, we knew it was going to be a challenge. For There's real hurdles we had to get through. There are real hurdles that are real issues. This is not stick your head in the sand theology. This is the opposite of that. This face into this moment, we're going to need the non-anxious presence of a good father who has a maternal, paternal heart that is a hand that rests on this world if we can go to that scale for a moment. And this is the invitation. This book helps us not just to know this God, not just to know a little about him, not just experience a little about him, but I think to take us into the deeper places where we actually trust that good hand over our lives. I think trust is one of the deepest places we go in a relationship where we just say we trust you God and from that place we want to minister to people in this moment of uncertainty hope that there is a good God who has not taken his hand off this world and then Jesus is working out a plan to his good end and goal longing for Eden a longing for communion with God longing to make sense of our world and to see glimmers of it being put right until one day it will be put right. As we respond just now, let's just take a moment to pray before God, but pray in maybe a slightly different way than we might have been used to before. Sometimes I think it's good to stretch our prayer, I, some people refer to it as a breath prayer or centering prayer. And I think more than ever, we need to learn different ways on the go, at work, or wherever we are, to just center ourselves on the presence of God. And I just want to lead us in that just now. It's a simple prayer where you take deep breaths and just say quietly, or not at all, just Say it silently or else you can say it under your breath. The words as you inhale and words, simple words as you exhale. 
And it's just a repeat, repetitive thing, just as we center this and say, like, this is not just ideas, this is reality. <laughs> Let's ground ourselves in the room with all the challenges that we know, but in the presence of a loving God who is Father, Son, Spirit. And may the Spirit just come and help us as we do that. I'll lead us in two different versions of this as a way just to respond and then also as a way to put into practice this week. You'll have plenty of opportunity to do that. If you want to just remain seated, feet on the floor, if you want to open your hands, let's just come before God and say, we want to still our hearts in your presence. Just take a few deep breaths in and out and slow your breathing down. As you breathe in, you might want to say, your grace, as you breathe out, is enough. Your grace is enough. Your grace is enough. Some people might find it easier to say as you breathe in, I will not be afraid because you are with me. I will not be afraid because you are with me. be afraid because you are with me. Spirit of God, would you just, as we continue in our worship, underscore in our hearts your ferocious desire to be with us and to lift us up. I love you, God. Thank you that you join here. Let's worship God.